If you have a Bible, open to the book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, if you don't have one, there's a pew Bible in front of you. Uh, if you're new to reading your Bible, just kind of do this. It's more towards the end than the beginning, and you'll find the Gospel of John. Uh, feel free to use the table of contents. Well, when, before Lori and I got married, I was a, I loved sport bikes. Uh, I just love everything about them in my 20s. I loved the look of them. I loved the feel of them. I loved the responsiveness of them. I, I loved the, just being able to, to twist your wrists and your, on your throttle and going from 40 to, to 80 miles an hour in a heartbeat. Everything about it was fun. Um, you know, when you're young, 20s, think you're invulnerable or what's the, uh, immortal, you tend to do things that are a little bit crazy. Um, I remember, just humor me on this, just being on this, I haven't talked about my motorcycle love in such a long time. Um, as you can see, see, I still love motorcycles. Uh, the problem is I've crashed every one I've ever owned, so that's why I don't have one now. Being in a mountain with some buddies on the high mountains, they have these just long rows that, roads that go on for forever. And, you know, still being a relatively new Christian, speed limits were more like suggestions. I didn't realize that part of my faith meant obeying the laws of the land. So I'm prefacing that. I know it was wrong. But, boy, I remember going down on 600cc dual overhead cam motorcycle screaming down, I hit 147 miles an hour and thinking, man, this is life. I was just loving it until I realized if a gopher ran out in front of me, that would be the end of it. Um, the reason I'm sharing this is good motorcyclists, uh, number one, don't break the law. They always drive the speed limit. Um, good motorcyclists have a concept called target fixation. And if you ever watch a motorcyclist, I don't know if um, street bikers, I don't know if any of you are, are kind of uh, Harley people or anything, but if you watch a sports bike rider, a good sports bike rider, especially on turns, is never looking in front of them. They're always looking through a turn. So if you ever, especially some of these freeway on-ramps that do this, if you watch a sport bike rider that's good, they are looking already at the on-ramp, almost behind them as they're going through the turn. The concept of target fixation says, whatever your eyes are focused on is the direction you're going to go. And so, and it happens to your detriment too. If you start to panic and you look at the ground or the concrete, usually that's how you crash. I don't know how, what the physiology is or anything, but that's just the way it works. Target fixation, where your eyes focus on a motorcycle and probably on other vehicles as well, that's where your body tends to go. Now, what's true of riding motorcycles is also actually true of living life. Whatever we tend to focus on tends to be the thing that we're going to gravitate to, whether that means it's going to be a successful turn through an on-ramp or we crash and burn out. What we put before our eyes, what we're focused on matters because it will direct the way we go. Now, this past season, last couple of weeks, you, like me, have seen your share of nativity scenes, the, the picturesque baby Jesus and, and all the kind of real glowing statues and wise men. And, and, and all, by the way, there were no wise men at the Jesus' birth, but I'll get into that next year's sermon. Um, we see Jesus. We've been thinking about Jesus, hopefully. But a lot of this season is the baby Jesus. And, and, and my wife and I were talking about it. everyone loves Christmas. We have a hard time with Easter because Easter really is about the death of Jesus and the resurrection and what that means. But everyone can get into a baby. Oh, it's a cute baby. Whether or not you know that he was the, the Savior, you're going to celebrate the babies of Jesus. Well, I think it's important that we step back a little bit and realize that that 
isn't the point of Jesus' birth. We, we want to fill in that picture a little bit of what exactly this baby was born to do. Now, many of you know that, so this will be review, but what I want to do this morning on the heels of Christmas is have something else that we can fix our eyes on that can then determine the direction that we're going to go. You know, I'm not a resolution maker. Maybe some of you are. Um, I just don't do that. But I do think it is wise to, be a, to say, how am I going to steward this life? How am I going to steward this next year that God has given to me in a way that's, that's best for what he has for me and the purposes for, of his plan and his will? How am I going to do that? One foundational way to do that, and it's going to look t- different for all of us in this room, but one way that's going to be very similar is that we, we want to be fixed on who Jesus Christ is. And so this morning, I want us to do that, looking through passages of Scripture and get a kind of fill in what I've called a portrait of Christ that Christmas season gives us part of the portrait, part of the picture, but the New Testament helps fill that out. So that's what we're going to look at. Would you pray with me as we jump into God's Word? Father, we thank you. Coming off the Christmas season, it has been a blessing. It has been a, a very busy and happy and frenetic pace for many of us. There is a collective exhale of enjoying something really well and and looking forward to a little bit of time, maybe a a slower season. Perhaps people have time off from school and maybe some time off from work for family and for friends and for reflecting. And so, Father, we have gathered as your people this morning to do that again. And what we want to reflect on, what we want to fixate on is this picture of Christ of who he is. We have celebrated him, at, at least this, this, the, his birth as a culture, but we want to celebrate him in his, in his saving work as well. So would you bless us as we open your word and get a portrait of who Jesus Christ is. Amen. One of the most famous passages of Scripture is Psalm 23. Uh, the first line of that psalm reads, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The concept of a, of a ruler or of a leader being a shepherd combines two very unusual traits. On, on the one hand, it's this, uh, the traits of compassion and care. And on the other hand, there's this trait of direction and, and firm uh, rule and guidance. Now, this concept of a leader being a shepherd is not unique, certainly, to the psalmist who wrote Psalm 23, King David. It's not even unique to Judaism. Uh, The concept of a leader or even a deity of being a shepherd, taking that metaphor, was actually pretty commonplace in antiquity uh, amongst the rulers and gods, uh, the pantheon of gods of Mesopotamia, Assyria, and Egypt. This metaphor of a leader or a king or a deity being a shepherd was pretty common. Uh, What makes the the biblical application of the metaphor uh, so amazing is the consistent use of this metaphor throughout the Bible. It's not something that appears early on, but because of discouragement or reality not matching, it falls out of disuse. The Bible consistently uses this this metaphor of a shepherd. Now, when you consider how those those cultures of antiquity all kind of had that metaphor, uh, it shows that people long for their kings, their, their leaders, their rulers, those above them, to be this kind of unique combination of care and compassion, yet, yet deliberate and intentional rule, and even a kind of firmness. The Christian God, as I said, the other gods in antiquity never quite held to that, that pattern, that standard. Neither did the, the rulers or, or kings of that time. But the Christian God never strayed far 
from this ideal of compassionate care and, and loving rulership, rulership. As a matter of fact, in the Bible we see it, I'm just going to quote two places. Number one would be Ezekiel 34.23. The prophet Ezekiel is thinking, speaking on behalf of God, and the Lord says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Now, this is obviously after King David's time, but David was the kind of the standard that, that foretold the coming of a new shepherd that would care for the people of God. In Psalm 77:20, the psalmist writes, You led your people along that road like a flock of sheep with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. So again, we see this concept of even God being part of that, uh, being a shepherd who also had these under-shepherds of Moses and Aaron. In Jeremiah 23, uh, Jeremiah speaks of all the rulers, the magistrates, the prophets, the priests, anybody who had a position of authority in the nation of Israel, he referred to them as shepherds. They were supposed to exercise that compassionate care and loving rulership. But the primary uh, portrait of Israel's shepherd belonged to God himself. If you're a note taker, write down Psalm 68.7, where, where the psalmist says that God himself takes on the shepherd-like role of going before his flock. Psalm 23 that we alluded to earlier speaks of this divine guidance, his protection, and how he feeds and waters those who follow after him. And then finally, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, this wonderful picture of how a shepherd carries the sheep, so does God carry those, carries the young, carries those who cannot walk on their own. So we see all these beautiful pictures of what the shepherd is. So, so this concept of a leader, of a king, even a deity being a shepherd was already had some meaning poured into it. So by the time we get to the New Testament and Christ is now on the scene, so to speak, there are certain passages that refer to him as a shepherd, but it adds an adjective or two that further defines what kind of ruler or what kind of leader Christ would be. And so this morning, we're going to look at three of those verses. Number one, in John chapter 10, verse 11, where you're turned to now, Christ as the good shepherd, which speaks to his person. A second passage of Scripture will be Hebrews chapter 13, that speaks of Christ as the great shepherd, that speaks to his power. And then finally, uh, 1 Peter 5, where it speaks of Christ as the chief shepherd, that speaks to his position. So in his being a good shepherd, it talks about his personhood. Being the great shepherd talks about his power. Being the chief shepherd talks about his position. And that, that's how we're going to look at these this morning. Um, John chapter 10, Christ being the good shepherd. This, the whole chapter is talking about Christ's role as the true shepherd of Israel, as the good shepherd. I'm just going to pull out one verse out of an amazing chapter where Christ is comparing all the false shepherds with what the true shepherd is. And that's chapter 10, verse 11. Christ says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, most of us in the industrialized West, actually all of us probably, when we think of shepherds, we tend to think of Hallmark-type pictures, don't we? Uh, we? We even see them in our, in our lobby there. They're kind of sentimental beings, soft, well-groomed. They're, they're not the kind of dirt under the fingernails, gruffy, smelly, rough kinds of men that took that role. 1 Samuel 17, 34 gives us a glimpse of how dangerous being a shepherd and how rough a job that could be and dangerous a job as David is recounting that when he was shepherd over his father's flock, 
Whenever a lion or a bear or a wolf would take one from the flock, it was the shepherd's job to free that sheep from the mouths of these beasts and bring them back to the fold. Now, we have a dog named Napoleon about this big. Not nearly like a wolf or a bear or a lion, but when he gets hungry, you don't try and take food from little Napoleon. His fangs come out and he becomes this beast. Could you imagine facing down a hungry lion that's about this big? A shepherd was far from a sentimental, effeminate character. A shepherd had dirt under their nails, had a staff, by the way, not just to guide the sheep with the crook. You notice a shepherd's staff has a nice crook aside to it. A shepherd's staff would also whack the wolves with the blunt end. So it was both a tool to guide and a tool to defend. And that's what a shepherd was. And combining those wonderful metaphors of care through the crook and direction, if necessary, through the blunt end of it. When we see here in John chapter 10, when it says he is the good shepherd, we, we kind of think that the word good doesn't help the image much, but the Greek behind it, kalos, is the word of nobility, noble, worthiness. This is a worthy and noble shepherd. Jesus is comparing himself and his ministry to all the false shepherds who did not care for God's people, who abused them didn't teach them the word of God, who put loads upon them that they couldn't bear, and didn't teach them who the character of God really was like. But Jesus says he is the genuine shepherd who cares, so much so that like other good shepherds, he's willing to die for the sheep. But what separates Jesus Christ as the good shepherd from other good shepherds is that while other good shepherds are, are willing to die for the sheep, it's never their intention to die for the sheep. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. His intention is to die for the sheep. He did not come merely to risk his life. He came to give his life. From the get-go, the life and death of Jesus was intended not merely to be an example, but the means by which the sheep of God are saved. There was no other plan. It wasn't as if in the heavens the triune God talked and God the Father said to the Son, look, if you can get through this without going, ending up on the cross, do it. But if that's your only choice, well, then that's what it is. That was never the conversation. It was never just an intention or a, a willingness to die. The Father said to the Son, there's just no other way to do this. You need to die for the sheep. That's what separates them. It wasn't just a willingness it was the, his intention to come and die, and through his death, the sheep are saved. That's why he's noble. That's why he's worthy. That's why he's good. And unlike the, the pictures of their heroes and their saviors of antiquity, kind of like ours, that saved through kind of these, the strength, displays of strength and wit and prowess, he saves through a display of humble service and sacrificial obedience to the Father. If we can reason from the greater to the lesser, if, if he's good enough to die for you, isn't he good enough to provide for you? If he's good enough to die for you, isn't he noble enough to supply your needs? Isn't he worthy enough to guide you? Isn't he capable enough to carry you? See, this was Paul's point 
In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, Paul makes his exact point. He writes this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, he's arguing from the lesser, the greater to the lesser. If he would give up his own son, how would he not also along with the son give you all things? See, this is the core of God's character, that he is good. The core of God's character is his goodness. Do you believe that? Now, I know in a church you're tempted to answer yes, because that's what we're supposed to say, but stop before you answer. Do you believe at the core of God's character that he is good to you? I had a chance to share with a neighbor friend a couple nights ago, and the core of her problem was she did not believe that God was good. I said to her, you know, here's the reality. That's just not you. Do you you realize that it's the human predisposition to doubt the goodness of God? And that's why I said, stop and think. You say, well, how do you know that? You just look in Scripture, Genesis chapter 3, the very thing that Satan, the enemy of God's people, tempted the people of God was, has he really got your best interests in mind? He went to the character of God and placed doubt in the hearts of Adam and Eve. Is he really got your good in mind? Is that why he told you not to eat from this? Really? I don't think so. It is our tendency to doubt the goodness of God. When you believe, truly believe that his character is good, that means that even the hard things that come in your life, you reckon and say, this is hard, but I know that God is good. Therefore, even this difficulty will work out for my good. You see, in our culture, we misunderstand good and easy, right? We think if it's good, it's got to be easy. But if you stop and think, some of the best things in your life have been very hard. And so when hard things come, that doesn't mean that God isn't good. It actually can be the evidence of his goodness. It's just we've misunderstood. When we think of God being good, that means he makes my life easy. But that's not the same. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And to show you, I lay my life down for the sheep. Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. If John 10 helps us to focus upon the person of Christ, who he is, Hebrews 13 will help us to focus on what he does. So Hebrews chapter 13, all the way towards the end of the New Testament, verses 20 and 21. It's a great passage. Let me just read it briefly to you, and then we'll unpack this. The author to the Hebrews writes this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, for unpacking this, let me give a little bit of context. The entire book of Hebrews was written to show the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. Now you say, well, what's the new covenant, old covenant? What's the broadest division of the Bible? Anyone, what are the two broad divisions of the Bible? Yeah, old covenant, new covenant. I heard Old Testament, New Testament. Right, these are similar words. They are in the same family. Testament, covenant, promises. The Bible's divided in these two large testaments or covenants. 
And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that there's this new covenant that was ushered in with Christ. If you recall John 13 at his last supper with the disciples, he says, a new covenant I start with you. So this new covenant, the, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, is far superior than everything that has come before. One huge way to understand the Bible is look at it this way. Old Testament, promises made. New Testament, promises fulfilled. Real simple way to understand the whole Bible. In the Old Testament, promises, promises, promises made. New Testament, promises, promises, promises fulfilled. And the writer saying, I want to show you how this is, this is fulfilled. In the new covenant, there is a much a newer and better sacrificial system. You no longer have to bring your, your goats and your sheep and your oxen and your bulls and, and slaughter them and the blood and all that, that horrifying reality to remind you of your sin. That's been done away with. There's a new sacrificial system. And that was not just lambs and ox and goats, but the Son of God himself. He was cut open and his blood was shed. You don't have to do that anymore. We have a better sacrifice. There's no longer an a, a old priest system where before in the Old Covenant, you couldn't get directly access to God. You had to go through a priestly class. In the New Covenant, we have a great high priest, and all the people of God are priests unto God. You have direct access to God. In the Old Covenant, only one man at one day of the year could be in the very presence of God and bring the petitions of the people. It's called the Day of Atonement. According to Hebrews chapter 4, Everybody has access to God every day in Christ. The writer's saying, this is so much superior. The new covenant is so much superior to the old covenant. Basically what he's saying is that the gospel is so far above the religious protocols of the past. And that's what the entire book is about. And it culminates in Christ in this chapter 13 with these two verses. So the reference of Christ being the great shepherd is to allude to the fact that Jesus Christ supersedes all the shepherds that Israel had had up to that point, including Moses. Keep in mind, the original readers of this primarily were Jews or God-fearing Gentiles. So, So Moses, to them, was considered the shepherd of Israel, right? Psalm 77, we read about that. And the writer of Hebrews saying that Jesus supersedes even Moses, Moses who brought you the law, right? Moses who brought you the old covenant. Now, the Jews in the Old Testament had an unusual, we might say, love-hate relationship with the law. They loved the law because it showed them the character of God. It talked about what God expects, his standards, and all those realities, how to become one right with God, how to commune with God. The problem was it had no power to enable us to live up to it. So the law just served to condemn. They loved it because by it they understood the character of God and how beautiful and perfect and righteous and just. But in in so doing, it only highlighted to them, we're so far from that mark. And so there was this love-hate relationship with the law. See, it had no power to transform them. It only would, would, would condemn them. And, and the idea was, according to Galatians 3, the idea was the law was to press them to realize, oh, we can't live up to, to, to God's standards. There needs to be another way. There needs to be someone who can do this for us. It was to prepare them to look for a salvation because the law couldn't provide it. But you know what they did? They did what all of us human beings do. They got religious. And so their whole lives became about the law, and fulfilling the law became what it was all about. The whole idea was the law was to convince them, I cannot do this. 
and, and humble them and say, would, Lord, would you bring somebody who can? That's why they missed out. On who, that's a large part why they missed Jesus. And Jesus says, look, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. And so Galatians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes that the law could only condemn but had no real power to transform people. Yet, according to the writer of Hebrews, Jesus is the great shepherd because in bringing the new covenant through his death, verse 20, he also brought the power to enable us to do what was demanded of us. This is why he supersedes all other shepherds because he didn't just bring the new covenant, but he brought the power to live it, verse 21. Now, I want you to look in the, on the screen. I think we have 2 Corinthians 3.18 up there, but I want to uh, unpack this a little bit more, so excuse me while I turn to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It's one of the most powerful verses in the New Testament about um, how we grow in, as a Christian. So this is what Paul writes. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, he's talking about in context of Christ, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what's that saying? What Paul is saying is that as we are beholding the glory of the Lord as it is in Jesus Christ, we are being transformed in that same image. And with all of us being so different, it's going to look different. So for, for others, it's one degree to another, but it's a transformation process that's happening. Now, in verse 14, this whole chapter, by the way, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is talking about the same thing that the Hebrews' writer is talking about, how the old law is, is, is not sufficient compared to the new law. So in verse 14, he writes this. Paul writes, but their minds, the people of the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament Jews, they were hardened for, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. And then he says, so only through Christ, when you understand and perceive Christ, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, by focusing on Christ, you are transformed into that image, one degree of glory to another. Target fixation, spiritual target fixation is what he's getting at. That's how we grow. You see, Christianity, it's not about us spending all of our time, attention, and effort uh, to do things for God. It's us spending our time, energy, and effort recognizing and being amazed at what God has done for us. We say, look at the cross and go, I couldn't do it. But you did. I couldn't do, I couldn't live up to the law. There was no way. I was condemned under the law. But you sent a Savior who lived to the law in every perfect way, in every thought, in every action, in every attitude. He lived to the law and he did it. He did it. He did it for me. And as I gaze upon him, I go, man. That's what I want to be like that begins to transform us. So yesterday I had a wonderful opportunity. It was, uh, yesterday we were hiking in, um, in God's providence. There was a Lutheran theologian on the trail. And uh, we got in this great conversation, as we do when you're hiking, about the sacraments and how God changes us to be like Jesus Christ. And, and, and here's what I love. I, I think the Lutherans, Martin Luther was a genius. I think the Lutherans have it right. They have an expression your sanctification is just getting used to your justification. You go, what, what, what was that all been? Sanctification is the theological term of being set apart for the things of God. It means to be more like Jesus Christ. That's why it's a lot easier just to say sanctification than that whole expression, right? That's what sanctification means. Justification is a legal term 
you ever heard the expression, justified, never sin, right? Justified, get it, right? So justification, I'm legally forgiven, the debt is paid, I'm no longer guilty of my sin, I'm justified. So sanctification is simply getting used to your justification. In other words, when I want to become more like Jesus Christ, I spend my time being amazed at my justification in faith. Now, it falls apart at some point, and that's why some of the Lutheran theology has a little bit of some holes in it, but I love the kernel of the, the, the idea. Oh, it's not about me. How do I get better and do better and be moral and all those things? Oh, that's part of it. But the answer to that is I just am amazed at what Jesus did for me, and I, I focus on that. And I become changed and transformed. The, the author of the he, to Hebrews is saying that's why he's the, the great shepherd. That's why he supersedes everything else. Because everyone who by faith trusts in him, Jesus Christ, they are transformed by him to be like him, is what he's saying. And so if we look at John, that, that he is a good shepherd, speaking of his character and person, we look at Hebrews and say he is a great shepherd because he has power to transform us power that you don't have in yourself. And then finally, um, 1 Peter 5, this is our last verse that we'll look at this morning. He rounds out the picture, although more could be said, 1 Peter 5 says this, Christ is the chief shepherd, Peter writes, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So this is our last passage. John reminded of us of his character is good. Hebrews reminds us that, that his power is great. And then Peter reminds us that his position is preeminent. He is the chief shepherd, the ark shepherd. The buck stops with him is the idea here. And I love Peter, the, the impulsive, get into more trouble than he's probably worth disciple here. What an encouragement. At this point in his life, if, if any of you volunteer with Jared and Saquon and work with our students, Peter ought to be your shining hope. Because think about it, in the ministry that Christ had on earth, Peter never got it. He never bore the fruit that he should have. But Christ just kept loving and kept pouring into him. And here we now have this wizened, aged elder that other elders want to be like. And here he's writing to, to, to particularly to elders in churches. So this has a particular application to the elders in a church, uh, whether you're presently or past or maybe in the future. But by, by broad application, it applies to all of us, doesn't it? Because, because at some degree, all of us are in levels of leadership. Mothers and fathers to sons and daughters. Right? Uh, fathers to their families. Older, and young, older men and women to younger men and women, friends to one another, you to yourself. We all give an account to the Lord. Notice what, what Peter says, two important points in this brief sentence. Number one, when the chief shepherd comes, he is coming. When he comes, our reward will be with him. Two quick observations when he comes, our reward will be with him. The biblical idea of history is very linear, isn't it? There is a beginning, there is a middle, and there is an end to this. God has a plan, and he will bring it about to its conclusion. History is not an endless cycle of events and situations. There is a beginning, middle, and end. And God's going to bring it to a conclusion. This is why... What we have fixed our eyes on matters so much. 
This is why it's so important to make sure that we're taking stock at least annually to say, what is it that my life is zeroed in on? And is it the thing that matters? What Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.18, it's on the screens behind me. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Why? Because the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What are you fixed on? Is it the things of this world that are so transient that yeah, maybe 70, 80 years you've got it and then it's gone? Or is it the things that are unseen that Paul says are the things that are eternal? You know, one of the blessings, I remember one of my favorite memories, where's Doris? There's Doris. I remember a few months ago before Art's passing, we were standing up there near the refuge and Doris and Art, their faith was ground, grounded. They knew what was going on. I said, Art, are you just, are you ready? Ready to go? And he had a smile and he said, yeah. I mean, he loves his family, he loves his wife, but he knew he had been living for things eternal. And he was not pining away. I need more life. I want this life to last longer. He recognized this life is not what life's about. You live for things eternal. What are you fixed on? And Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, some of you are old enough to remember that expression. People would say, ah, oh, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You've heard people say that, right? Well, we know what they mean. They're, they're saying that their faith that is, is so ethereal, it doesn't have traction in this life. It doesn't bear fruit. It's not the kind of dirt under your fingernails kind of faith. Right? We, we've seen that. We get that. But what Paul is actually saying here in Colossians 3 is that until you're earth, heavenly minded, you can't be earthly good. Until you understand what life's about, you don't understand what life's about. That's what Paul's saying. If you want this life to matter, you've got to live like it ultimately doesn't matter. That's how you make it matter. You live for the thing that matters, and it's not this life. It's the one that is bumping up against this world every day if you're just wise enough and discerning enough to realize it. We had a little glimpse of that at Christmas season. Society gets a little glimpse of that at Christmas season, then it goes away. Paul's saying, live for the things that matters because he is coming. The chief shepherd is on his way. So Peter's reminding, he's reminding these church leaders who, by the way, were trying to shepherd a persecuted and beleaguered flock. He's trying to remember a persecuted and beleaguered people. He's coming. And in accordance to his title, he is bringing his reward with him. Isn't that a comfort to hear? That when he comes, <laughs> it's not going to be a list of, hey, not bad, but here are the problems I saw with the way you live for me. When he comes, he comes with his reward. You see, that coming full circle, that, that kind of shows, do we actually believe he really is good? How do you feel about him coming right now? If you really believe he's good, you're going to be like, yes, good. The reward's coming. If not, you're a little bit nervous about that. Peter says he's coming, and his reward is with him. He's coming, and it's for your blessing, and it's for your benefit. Now let me speak just specifically a little bit to the elders of our church, both past, present, and the ones who will be future. The reward of being an elder is an unfading crown of glory 
That's what the ESV says, an unfading crown of glory. The NIV says, a crown of glory that will never fade away. I love the New Living Translation. A crown of never-ending glory and honor. Now, we don't have time to get into exactly what that means or what that crown's about, but actually, it really doesn't matter. I'm not picky. (laughs) If you're going to give me any kind of crown, I'm more than happy to have it. It doesn't matter. And the New Testament often speaks of rewards to all Christians. And you know what? I I think, you know what? The the longer I'm a Christian, here's my biggest reward. My biggest reward in heaven, I used to think, wow, streets of gold, you know, all those things. We think about mansions. We think about all the things we can get. My biggest reward is, and I can honestly say this, I was listening to a podcast with uh, John Piper and some others, and they just hit the nail around the head. I agree with them. My biggest reward is I'm not going to be struggling with sin. (laughs) The downward pull of sin will be gone. Yeah? I will not have to wrestle with envy, with anger, a short temper. I will not have to wrestle with lust. I will not have to wrestle with greed, bitterness. Not only that, but what will come from me is things like joy and grace and humility and, 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 and care for people. That will just flow from me as much as anger does when someone cuts me off on the 405, right? It'll just be this beautiful eruption of godliness. I <laughs> just can't even imagine. So you know what? That's my crown. I hope that's, that's got to be it. I mean, there's more to it. But that's what I want. I think that's what you want, to be free from the downward pull of sin that we struggle with daily. And one way we struggle against it is by keeping our, 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 our eyes fixed on the good character of God, on the amazing power of God to transform us into his image, and this preeminence of this chief shepherd who when he comes, it's going to be with a blessing to his people. I hope that this year, when you're thinking about how you want this year to look, that that's part of it. At least that's, that, that, that picture is somewhere in the overall picture of what you want your life to look like this year. You imagine if we were a church, an entire church of us, that that was the case. How great that would be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being able to look at your word just briefly, just three verses at the shepherding role of Christ. Father, I'm going to ask, Lord, that you help us. We are a needy people, and we need to know and believe in the core of who we are that you are good. Forgive us for when we doubt that. Help us to believe that. Help us to trust in your amazing, transforming power as we focus our lives with a laser focus on the person of Jesus Christ, that that process alone transforms us to be more like him. We'll never be free from sin this side of heaven, but Father, we know that you're constantly working toward those ends. And Father, may we always remember that he is our chief shepherd, that our lives have meaning, a point, and purpose, and Jesus Christ is the chief end of it all. Father, would you make that true of us, your people? In his name we pray. Amen. This message titled The Portrait of Christ was given by Pastor Rick Roadheaver at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.ccclh.org.